out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the British musician, poet, artist and playwright. It is Neil Oram, author of The Warp, a ten-play uh, ten cycle that was directed by Ken Campbell uh, during the late 70s. Um, this is the interview and um, yes, we do get down to some very exciting and quite complex um, subjects really. So um, sit back, relax, I was going to say enjoy, but it's quite a dense interview um, and after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that important subject that was the early formative years, Neil being born in 19. 19- 38. Um, so we were talking about his childhood, and uh, this was Neil's response. Neil, it's over to you. Well, you see, this is interesting. You should ask me this question because um, I've just finished a novel which is going to be which in the process of being published right now. And um, my childhood was very interesting. My father was um, close to being a genius. And um, he anticipated the war, so he joined up 18 months before, determined to be a pilot. But my mother was so highly strung that he never dared tell her that he was going to be a pilot. Mm-hmm. So he trained to be a pilot. And not only did he do that, in those days, that was, in, say, 1936, 37, the Hurricanes had to fix wheels. And he recognized, realized, you know, it slowed everything down. And he invented what's called the oilio leg so that the, that the wheels could be retracted. And anyway, so he, and then later on, he became a Spitfire pilot and he took part in the Battle of Britain and all that stuff. And he had wings, you know, on his uniform. Right. And, you know, so I'm only three, four, five, whatever. And he, absolutely lies to my mother because she said oh you got wings now he said yeah he said because you know all the mechanics he made out he was a freight mechanic you see he said all the mechanics have got wings now because we're in and out of the spitfires all the time she said you, you don't get in the air she said, no of course not absolutely not because i mean she would die i mean it, it she was so hysterical right so my early years were only with her and this is Torquay. And Torquay was a favorite haunt of um, Goering's tip and run um, strategy. That was racing across from there, from France, six feet above the English Channel, and just dropping bombs anywhere, strapping people, not strategic, on purpose, not strategic, so that there was no protection because, you know, and guns and everything, you know, you know, ACAC guns and cannons and everything were only protecting strategic areas. So they just dropped bombs in fields, whatever, just terrifying people. And by the time the sirens went, they'd gone. They were mostly fucking wolves. And um, so my mother was a bag of nerves all the time. And she was hysterical. And she had a cane. And she would cane me. And whilst caning me, she would say, Curse was the day you were born, your ugliest sin, no woman will ever come near you. Um, and these implications um, 
you know, at the same time, and then she would go, I beat you black and blue. I'm like three years old, four years old, five years old, beat you black and blue. And then I would hear this buzzing sound and I would go unconscious. And when I came round, I'd be on her lap. And this is the same woman who's just beat me unconscious with a stick, a cane. And she'd be saying, no one's ever going to love you like your mum. No one, no woman would ever come near you, like come in between you and me, because, because no one would ever love you the way I do. So I had this absolute bifurcation and like schizophrenic madness. And I was brought up like that. I was brought up like that. And um, my father, because he was such a genius, um, he was selected out because he'd done this thing with a hurricane. When, when Frank, um, huh, Frank, the guy that invented the, the, the um, jet engine, Frank, it's not Willis. I, I know I his name. Anyway, it doesn't matter. You could check it out. And he, he got called to actually work with him. And so my dad was on a 48-hour leave. And he said to me, so I'm not, so this is now 1944. So I'm now six and he says i'm on a very strange mission son and i say yeah what's that you know you might get him sick and he said well i've got to go to wiltshire and i got to stand in a country lane and um and i got to wait for a farmer on a tractor with bales of hay and he's going to say to me to enjoy the good weather um soldier and i have to say yeah as long as it lasts more than one day so off he went. And later on, after the war, he didn't tell me till after the war, like two years later, what happened was he was on that corner, tractor comes by, bales of hay. Yeah, how'd you like the weather so good? Yeah, I love it if it lasts more than one day. Oh, you're the right man to jump on the back there and help me and un and un un take off the bales of hay. So then drove into a field, da 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 da, stopped. He said, give it a hand to uh, uh, take the bales off. And then we take the bales off. And he says, now take the middle ones out. It seemed mad. We just took it off. And underneath there was a trap door. And uh, I was then you know, told to go in. The farmer went away, left the bales, covered the trap door. And he said that he would be back to make sure I could get out again because I wouldn't be able to push the trap door open. And down there was a laboratory, this is in Wiltshire, where Frank, God, why can't I think of his name? I always know his name. Anyway, there he was, when he was working on the first jet engines, and the first planes that they brought out was, well, the first one was called the Meteor, then the Vampire. And that's my dad working on it. Then a lot of bombing happened on Salisbury Plain, and uh, the British intelligence began to think that they knew the Germans knew that there was this underground laboratory. So they moved the whole lot to Grahamstown in South Africa. And that's where my father was. And nobody knew where he was. It was so top secret. He wasn't even allowed to write letters. So for 18 months, we never heard a word. He could have been dead. But he was actually in South Africa working on these new jet engines. Yeah, so my... Um, my childhood was with a, a wonderful father 
and a bully of a mother. I mean, an absolute bully. And she remained that way right till she died when she was 96, about 10 years ago, and hated everyone, had not a single friend, and existed completely on hatred. That was her energy, hatred. Hatred of everyone, hatred of neighbors, absolutely. And strangely enough, about two months ago, I got an email from um, a, a young woman who had been a child at the same time as me next door. The family was called the Latori family, they were Italian background. And she said then that her mother remembers my mother and says, you know, what an ogre she was. And, and she, you know, she found me and wondered, had I survived? I mean, she was so terrible that she could have, you know, easily killed me. Mm. And um, yeah, so, I mean, it, it was like a, it's, it's so hard to believe, but it's true. And as a child, this stick she kept above the door, right? Now, I had no idea what I would have to do to get this, you see. I mean, I, I could have come, walked home, say, from school. Now, I hated the school. The school was up the hill. So I started in 1943 when I'm five. And it was the top of the hill, Hartop Hill, it's called Hartop School. And it was a Church of England school. And nearby was my Sunday school, which was a Church of England um, yeah, church. And behind the church was a Catholic church, maybe a hundred yards behind. And it had a very tall steeple with an iron cross. Now, on the 20, so I've been going to that school for four months. And it was like Auschwitz. It was, I hated it and I got bullied all the time. And one particular form of bullying was that two boys, Basil Stalker and Tony Yates, in the playground, yeah, I'm five, and they've, they, they, in their hand, they, they, in their cupped hands, they've got a, um, a butterfly. And I, I can't remember um, which one it is. Um, it's the one that's sort of like quite a common reddish one. Is it small? I used to know the names of all of them. And anyway, so they got this, and they're saying to me, if I don't pull the wing off the butterfly, one wing, because that makes a butterfly like spiral, mm -hmm. I can't be a part of their gang. I don't want to be a part of their gang, and I refuse to pull the wing off. So I started crying, you know, and I started really crying, baby, baby, you're a cry baby, that, you know, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And and then they tore off both wings and stuck it down my neck. And I was so horrified, I shot myself. I then, the teacher sent me home because he's just at the bottom of the hill where I lived, down the hill, just around the corner. And um, of course, when I arrived home, smelling everything, my mother goes berserk. She beats me with a cane and then rubs shit all over my face. And, um, you know, it's terrifying, terrifying. And that went on, that was like my normal day. That was my normal day with my mother. And every day, these two, Basil Stalker and Tony Yates, bullied me. And that went on from the age of five to the age of 12. Now, on the 29th of May, Oak Apple Day, that's when King Charles hid from Cromwell's soldiers up in an oak tree, is my mother's birthday. And because of that, 
we all went to King Staten, where my grandma and granddad lived. And this is vital because if that, if that hadn't happened, I'd be dead. I wouldn't be here. So we went there on the Saturday, the 29th. And on the 30th, on the Sunday, during, and this was his, and this was his, um, he only ever did one tip and run after that. No one knows why he stopped because it was incredibly successful. Terrified the whole south coast of England. This is operation. Anyway, twelve of these fucking wolves left one of the um, French, you know, aerodromes, raced across, and one pilot and I actually know his name because I've got a book on the tip and run policy. He was called Carl Law. He's only 19. He was an idiot. But he, he, he came across the sea, up Barricombe Downs, which was a cliff, then along Barricombe Downs, scattering people, pushing pans, right? Killing them, right? And he comes tearing along, probably at 350 miles an hour, and he hit the cross on the Catholic Church, the Iron Cross. Mm -hmm. No. No one knows, and, and it's no way of ever finding out, whether hitting the cross released, you know, they had two bombs, the Focke Wolves, and whether hitting the cross and released the bombs, which of course sailed you know, at that speed, went into the Anglican tower, because it had a tower, the Anglican church, it started off as a Saxon one, and there were 26 children, <laughs> school teachers and, and killed and I would have been there and the other bomb whizzed past the church and bombed my school of course it was Sunday there was no one there front flattened part up school so I'm up at King Staten with my mum and the whole family that is her real brother Roy and her half-brother, Ken and Jim, and her half-sister, Hilda, grandma and granddad, me, and Jimmy the dog. When, when um, there's a knock at the door, granddad got out. We just finished having roast. My granddad was fantastic with a catapult. So he would actually get rabbits with a catapult, and hares, um, to most meat was all that he caught. Mm -hmm. Or he fished in the okay pits and with dough, and I, and I it's amazing that this creamy water, and I would roll up these little balls of dough, put them on a hook, and then pull it out, you know, perch, etc. It's quite incredible. Anyway, so this Sunday dinner, this time we actually had because it's my mum's birthday, we had roast chicken, and then my favourite was um, syrup pudding with loads of syrup pudding and loads of syrup on yeah? golden syrup and um so there's a knock at the door and granddad comes back looking very grim and says to mary church is something bond and and that's like, like wow that's that's my sunday school as well that's what i've been there i've been bond and also heart up school has been flattened and i cheered because i hated it right Mm -hmm. And my mother hit me across the face because I was cheering. I wasn't cheering because the church had been bombed. 
I was cheering because Hartop scored the vision for me, right? And like, my mother crocked the face, and Uncle Ken and Uncle Jim put me down. Grandma said to my mother, you, don't you dare do that to him. Hoover, he was 10 years older than me, only 10 years older, right? So that I was five, she was 15. She cuddled me. But on the way, on the way home, my mother said, wait till your father hears you, that you were praising Hitler for bombing the church, is it? And um, so the next morning, my mother woke me up early, maybe 6 o'clock, 6.30. So this is the 31st of May then. And I remember, see, okay, so this plane by Carl Law, after he hit the cross, it messed his plane up completely. So he's now like a sort of crushed um, dragonfly hurtling down Hartup Road and then crashing in the golf course, which is like 100 yards away from my house. Mm. So she's woke me up and she's taken me into the golf course and we walk along. And, and I remember the mist as the sun's coming up, coming off the grass. I thought it was smoke. I thought the, place, the whole thing was smoking. Actually, because I never, I never been up that early, you know, about six, seven o'clock, walking mm. in, a, in a golf course. So, and then we came to this wreck of this flock of wolf with his nose buried into the the ground. And although I didn't know this at the time, the engine had actually come out and skidded across the golf course, right across Timberth Road, into someone's house. And from, and flattened it. I mean, the engine was, I don't know how heavy it weighed. I mean, like a ton or something. I mean, huge in engine. So, I mean, they were fighter bombers, these focker wolves. Anyway, so there is this plane, and it's, it, it's got its nose in the air, and its wings are all crushed, like I say, like a crushed um, dragonfly. And there's a, 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 a circle of grown ups. And I, of course, I'm five. You have to really understand this. I'm tired. I've never seen grown-ups crying. There's about 20 grown-ups, maybe more than that, 30, because my mums and dads, they're the parents who 15 hours ago had lost their children. I think, you know, you think, well, I wasn't moved by this. I tell you, didn't I'll be absolutely honest. I didn't make I didn't make the connection. It, I mean, I, what I did was really quite surrealist. I went up to the plane, and I touched one of its its tail, the tail of it. No, I didn't touch the tail of it. It was a wing that was that was broken and hanging down, almost touching the ground. And you know, it had the own cross on it, and, and I could see the swastika on the side of it. And I touched. I touched it like a holy grail, and I whispered, thank you, Hitler, because he destroyed my school and re released me from hell. That's, I actually, that's what happened to me. And of course, I thought that was the end of school. I mean, I, I didn't realize that they were gonna find another school for me to go to, which they did. So i give you a bit of a start to answer your question in my childhood. Yes, that, that's, that, that's probably more than, than... So just briefly on that point, did you have any brothers or sisters or were you the only child? Yes, I have got a brother six years younger. And when my mother 
on that Otakal day, a part of the celebration was that she was pregnant. My, she was three months pregnant. And she's so weird, actually, because here's another part of the story. So that when she was, I don't know, what, what six months pregnant, so maybe that'd be May, June, July, August or something like that. I woke up, I was sleeping in her double bed and I woke up and the lights were on and she was standing up beside the bed and the bed was covered in blood and she was pouring blood and she was completely freaked out. And I don't know, I mean, we didn't have a telephone. Our neighbor had a telephone, but it was probably two o'clock in the, in the morning. So she dressed herself in a fur coat. This is in July or something like that. Dressed me, and we walked all the way from St. Mary Church to Torbay Hospital in the middle of the night, me thinking she's dying at any moment. And then they operated on her, and they took her to dead child, right? And, and then, you know, eventually, you know, I, I don't know what happened to me was that the operation was happening, because I do remember going back in the ambulance, we were taken home. But in November, my brother was born, okay? So there was twins, and do you know what she said? Oh, Keith, that's my brother, he killed the other one, he murdered the other one in my womb. That's my mother. Yes, that's, um, that's quite a lot to cope with really, isn't it? So, so, so just briefly on that one, how did Keith's childhood and life go if he'd been accused of killing his, um, his unborn brother in the womb? How did she... How did she what? Why did why was she as she was? No, I was said. I just said. How did your mother relate to Keith in his childhood? What was Keith's childhood like? Oh, I see. How how what was Keith's life like? Well, you see, when Keith was born, um, so he my father came back from South Africa, so he didn't come back like everybody else did in nineteen forty-five. He didn't come back until the middle of nineteen forty-six. And so Keith would be one year old and, um, or two years old, that's right. So he would have been born in November, 1943. So, so 44, 44, 44, so maybe he was three. And, and she was okay to him you know, because I was still getting the brunt of it. When dad came back, um, she stopped beating me up the way she was. She still did it from, but not in the way of, of, of doing it until I was unconscious. And um, she still did it though. And um, it wasn't until I saw Rebel Without a Cause, James Dean. Yes. And I had a, I had a crew cut and I came back and she said, you look disgusting. And I knocked her to the floor. And that was when I was 15. That was the first time I got, when she was in her 90s, um, 92, maybe something like that, and she phoned me and told me what a bastard Keith was, I said, listen, I'm sick of you. You're a fucking witch. And I said, you cursed me. You, you, you put Keith down to me, and you put me down to Keith. You're a witch. You actually are evil. And I said, I never want to talk to you again. And that's it. And I never did. And I, never, I, didn't, I didn't go to the funeral. When she died when she was 96, that was the end of it. And I mean, I mean, honestly, um, I cannot believe 
Well, I'll tell you an interesting story because when I was seven, and the most famous person on the radio, and I don't know, maybe it was Tommy Handley or somewhere like that. And I thought, I'm going to become famous. And when I'm famous, I'll have, people will believe me, and I'm going to tell the whole world what my mother was like. That was an aim I had when I was seven. So when the walk was on at the ICA and Arena filmed it, the scene where she is beating me with a stick, at a stick, etc., 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 was actually broadcast on Arena on BBC, and my mother saw it. So when I was down taking um, my youngest daughter Ruby, who was one year old, and her mother Gemma, down to Torquay to meet my mother, I wanted her to meet, you know, this new daughter and granddaughter she's got. So I had a Ford Popular. And my mother is sitting in the back, and Gemma's sitting on in the front holding Ruby. And from the back, my mother says, What's all this thing about having a stick? I said, What do you mean? She said, I saw that on the um, on the television, and that your mother had a stick. I said, You beat me with that stick right through my life. And she said, I never had a stick. I mean, that stick was a bamboo one. And after so much beating, it would start getting frayed. And in my child's mind, I thought, oh, thank God, it's going to break. And then, but then of course, there was a new stick. And then there was a new stick. And then there was a new stick. And then there was a new stick. Yeah, yeah. blimey. And, Just and how could he actually say, I never had a stick? The only thing I achieved one thing was that people do know about my background and in my Wikipedia um, entry, I think it says, I didn't put it in there, I think it says that I had a, a bully of a mother, I think someone like that, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So and my father, yeah. I mean, have you got time to hear this? Yeah, yeah. All right. So I visited, my brother still lives in the same house, right? And so I was with Jenna and, um, and, and Ruby, and we were going to go down holiday to quite right down to the lizard in Cornwall. I got up early, and I was standing out at the at the back gate, and it's a sort of um, a cul-de-sac, right? It was a Hilly Gardens Road, and then there was a his cul-de-sac. And opposite our house was someone called Dennis Vickery, who belonged to the Magic Circle. He was a he was a conjurer. He was also a landscape gardener, and a very close friend of my father. So he's also up early, he's about seven in the morning. I say, hello, Dennis. And he said, who's that then? Because he's a great humorous. Because it could only be, I said, it's Neil. It could only be, he said, Neil who? It could only be me, right? Okay, I get very long here, but anyway. So I went across and I said, listen, did I used to come into your house in the war? And did you have a Buddha in your room? And he said, I'm a, I'm a student of Chinese Taoism, and if you can make a showing, it's much better than a talking. So come into the sitting room. And there is this Buddha, and it's a very tall one. It's about um, three foot high, and he brought it back from Burma. And he said, you used to come in here when you were, when your dad was fighting um, up in Biggin Hill, 
and used to come and sit opposite and used to imitate the Buddha, sit with your legs cross-legged, etc. And I did conjuring tricks for you. I said, well, how come this used to go on? And he said, your dad, when he, I mean, you know, the possibility of him being killed, you know, in this Spitfire fighting um, was very high, as you imagine. Mm. So he had said to Dennis, look, keep an eye on him, will you? And he said, because you know what Beryl's like. And um, so Dennis said, yeah, I'll, he can come into the house anytime he likes. He's said he can live there if he wants. So, so now we've come back out into the garden. And this other guy called Bill Phipps. Now, Dennis was 95, I think, at the time. And so Bill Fix is walking along. And Bill Fix was a cockney. And um, so Dennis says, Bill, who do you think we got here? I don't know, he says. He said, it's Neil. He said, well, Neil, how are you? I said, yeah, I'm having time. He said, well, he said, you don't look like I remember you. I said, no, well, I've gone on a bit, haven't I? So I said, what about your life? He said, I'll tell you what. He said, you know, I, he said, I'm a year older than Dennis. He said, I'm 96 now. He said, I still have a pint every day. And he said, I've got a girlfriend. And he said, I can still do it. And he said, I have some fun. And Dennis said, do you think it's time that Neil got to know who his father was? And I go, what? He said, do you think, Bill, it's time Neil got to know who his father was? He says, yeah, I think it is time. And I say, what are you two talking about? And Dennis said, should I tell him or you tell him, Bill? Bill said, I'll tell him. So he says, look, I was in the Merchant Navy for a long, long, long time. We're talking about 25 years, 30 mm -hmm. years. And he said, I've met thousands and thousands of men, but I've only ever met one man, and that's your father, who no one has ever said a bad word about. He said, your father, he said, I don't know if you know the term enlightened, mm -hmm. but he was the most enlightened being I've ever met. And Dennis said, not just enlightened, Bill, he said that everyone was uplifted by your father. And he said that people almost worshipped him, but he was so humble that they didn't actually do that. So because when he came over the RAF, he was the manager of the co-op Flores. It was mostly Flores in Green Grocery, but mostly Flores. And he just loved flowers, etc., like that. So he said that when he passed away, the whole of this area became darker because he was the light of the area. Right, so now I go down to Cornwall, we have a holiday, and we come back two weeks later, and in the two weeks, Dennis and Bill had both died. So it was as if I had to hear that because I'd gone, right? That was it. I mean, I think Dennis died a couple of days after telling me, and Bill three or four days afterwards, right? So that was pretty extraordinary, pretty extraordinary. So, yeah. That what is, do you reckon about that? Yes, well, God, so, yes. So when they were saying, you were saying they would tell him, Neil, was that to do with your, you know, what amazing man your dad was? Yes. 
That is fantastic. He was amazing. I mean, I'll tell you an instance of like an enlightenment. When I was about, now one thing was odd was that every night we said the Lord's Prayer together. He wasn't religious, never went to church, no sentiment about Jesus, just the Lord's Prayer. We did it every night before I went to sleep. And one night when I'm, I don't know, eight or nine, I say, Dad, I can't stop lying. He said, is that true? Well, that's where it starts. That's where it started. And I said, yes, Daddy, it is true. He said, uh-huh. He says, and when you're lying, do you know you're lying when you're lying? I said, yes. He said, how do you know you're lying when you're lying? I don't know, Dad. He said, I'll tell you why you know. Because that which knows you're lying is who you are. You are the truth. You, What you call I is the truth. The lying is what you've learnt from society and from everything else just to stop yourself getting punished, whatever. It's, it's what you've adopted from the game of the world. And it is actually based on lying and exaggeration and self-centeredness and egotism, etc. But all the time, the truth in you sees that and knows that. And that's when I'm eight or nine. That's my dad. Mm, so how old was your how long did your dad live for by the way he dropped dead talking to my mum at the age of 62 just dropped dead like that and about 15 years later my mum bumped into the family doctor dr malam and she said i and i just don't understand what happened to bob he would drop dead whilst he was talking to me. And he said, oh, so he didn't tell you. Tell me what? He said he'd come to see me a month before, and I examined him, and it was obviously he had thrombosis. Now, he might have had cancer as well. I don't know. I mean, other doctors have so told me that they think that he probably had cancer as well. But anyway... So Dr. Maiden said, when he came to see me, I said to him, Bob, I would say you've only got a month to live. They were due to go on holiday, my dad and my mum. So he never said a word to her. She said, what happened when you went to see this at that time? Oh, he said, I had, I had cartilage trouble in my knee. So he lied, right? He knew, and he, and he died talking to my mum exactly a month later, all right? And he didn't tell my mum she worked it out because it would have spoiled her holiday. If, she had said, if he had said, look, I've only got 28 days, what sort of holiday would they have had, you see? So he kept it to himself, yes. I mean, you know, you don't often say about people nowadays, do you mean it and sincerely mean it, that someone is noble. Well, he mm. was noble. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Sounds amazing. So as you as you progress through your late teens and twenties, obviously that coincides with the sort of sixties. Had you left home by then? Had I met, hmm? had you left home at the end of your teen teenage years and and I just wonder what happened into your twenties and also throughout the sixties, what that period was like. Because obviously there was a huge social change, wasn't there? 
yeah what i mean um okay so this this a whole different part of my life started then a guy called paul eva who had two brothers called frank and joe and frank used to go up to london from painton where paul eva lived up to painton and and was very into modern jazz right so paul was through his brother frank was listening to Charlie Parker and all these people. Now, he used to whisper these names to me. I didn't even know what they were, right? So he would be whispering these names, Dizzy Gillespie, Charlie Parker, Stan Getz, Lee Konitz, and all these names to me. I didn't know what they were. Right? I had no idea. But one day, we both had bicycles. He invited me to go home to his place in Paynton. And um, so I went there. He told me to sit down. He had his back to me. And he put a he put a record on, and he just turned around. And he put his fingers to his lips, like don't say a word, just listen. And the very first note changed my life. I didn't know what that note was. I know now what it was. It was a baritone sax played by Jerry Mulligan, and it was Walking Shoes. Is the name of the tune? But I didn't know that. By the time I'd listened to that side of the Jerry Mulligan Quartet with Chet Baker, Chico Hamilton. And Larry Bunker, I was a different person. I had to walk differently, dress differently, everything was different, right? And I had a newspaper round and all my money I spent on buying jazz records. Okay, so at this point, I was also into the Goon Show, but my mother wouldn't allow me to listen to it in the house. So I used to listen to it at a friend's house, Raymond Green. I'd gone down there, listened to the Goon Show, was walking back home when I suddenly was hit like a ton of bricks. Now, this is, I don't know, psychologically, I mean, I've studied psychology and everything, but this seems to me almost impossible to understand. What hit me in a, in, in, in a, a probably a non-verbal way was that I could not be Jerry Mulligan. Well, I mean, that's obvious, isn't it? From, from a logical point of view, but emotionally, it was so terrible, that I, I like literally fell to the ground. I was about a hundred yards from home, and I wasn't allowed to listen to my to jazz or anything because of my mother. So I had to listen to it in my father's shed, which was immaculate. You know, he looked after all his tools and everything was always there. And I had a wind-up record player, and I've got an electric arm that and and speakers. I've done it all that myself. I made my own one-valve radio and all that, and um. So I went into the shed, shocked at this realization that I I I don't know how I what I I, I don't know how it worked right the identification that I couldn't be Jerry Mulligan. So the next thing was I couldn't become a baritone player because he was the baritone player right. So I started to go through my mind all the instruments that I could possibly play. But the baritone seemed to come from inside. It's the sound came from inside. And I don't mean just like inside your body, but from an inside mysterious place, the sound of it. So all the other instruments I was thinking of, trumpet, trombone, um, you know, piano, all of them, all seemed to be on the outside. So what I said to myself was, it's hopeless. What I what I could do, which would be authentic. And not phony, is I could run a jazz club. That wouldn't be phony. 
and I could, you know, I could get people maybe like Jerry Mulligan to pay there, or you know, at, you know, this is me. I mean, this is at the age of fifteen. At the age of twenty-one, I had not only a jazz club, I had a jazz cafe called the House of Sandwiches with a jukebox with 40 um, EPs on it, that's 80 sides, and only bebop on it. And because it only had bebop on it, modern jazz on it, all the musicians on a Saturday afternoon, like Ronnie Scott and, 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 and Tommy Hayes and all these people, used to come to sandwiches because I would have each week new stuff on the jukebox. I'm not saying they even made the whole 40, but anyway, all the latest stuff. So it was famous. Downstairs in the basement was the, the pad, and the pad was a musician's club for musicians that opened at midnight. And, um, you know, every jazz musician, this is before Ronnie uh, Scott had his club, and Pete King, Ronnie and Pete King, they met each other downstairs in my basement. And no one knows about this. No one actually knows about this. See, Steve Punk knows about it, but no one really knows this. So in a sense, I was like quite a foundation for all these musicians because they all met at my place. Um, Graham Bond, um, you know who Graham Bond is? Yes. Yeah, so he became a resident um, musician. And, Graham Bond was a wonderful man. He was, um, yeah, he, he, one thing, you know, I used to play the piano. I mean, just me making my own piano. I never learned anything on purpose. But I would sit in the dark because I had a piano down the stairs and a drum kit all the time. And um, strangely enough, um, Ronnie had said to Pete King upstairs, can you play the drums? He didn't know that Pete King was an altar player. And Pete said, yeah, I can play the drums a bit. And Ronnie said, well, and can we go downstairs? He said to me, and do some practicing. Right? So Ronnie had his tenor sax. Pete played you know, drums. And that's how he got to know each other. And then you know, eventually Ronnie realized that Pete was a fantastic altar player. So that's how they met down there. And um, so sandwiches, became a hub, an absolute hub, and, and the pad as well. And I'll tell you what it really irks me is that there's a, um, a book company called Atlantic, and they've done a book on the 60s, I think it's called, and they've got a bit about me and, 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 and um, the House of Sandwiches and the pad, and would you believe it, and this, um, talk about lack of research, he's called it a rock and roll club. I mean, the worst thing possible, me would be rock and roll you know and it, it was like you know pure bebop you know it was like the real thing and then people like and um, dave tomlin and um and i can't remember because dave tomlin and the mike he's quite famous now i mean that now they all think oh god i wish he hadn't died and because mike when he took a lot of acid and graham took a lot of acid as well you know they all took a lot of acid and um, Mike actually sat down at low tide and drowned. Yeah, and, and drowned. I mean, he got into a terrible state. And I mean, if you looked up Google Dave Tomlin um, and see who he played with, and the pianist um, is like Mike Taylor, Mike Taylor, the Mike Taylor Quartet with Dave, with Dave Tomlin. 
Dave is still alive. Dave is very. I still communicate with Dave Tomlin, and um, and, as, and 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 Steve does as well. Nice, nice. Yeah. So, so taking us up to the sixties here, which is which is the decade that lots change. How did you navigate the the period? Because obviously you're into the 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 bebop jazz world. Yeah. Okay. Um, what happened was that um, so at one point I go to Paris. I was going forward and back to Paris quite a bit, and and I come back, and the Cray twins have taken over my basement and opened up a drinking club. So number one on my on my lease, I'm not allowed to have alcohol on it. They've got a drinking club going, the Cray twins, right? Okay, you're not going to tell me you don't know who they are. Yeah, yeah, I know the Cray. Okay, so everyone's terrified of them. I go down to West End Central, Saddle Road Police Station, ask to speak to a detective sergeant. Eventually one comes out and I say, <clears throat> Look, I've just come back from Paris and I found out that the craze was taken over my basement. Uh-huh. And I say, well, he said, where did you say you come from? I said, well, I've just come back from Paris. How long were you there for? I said, oh, I don't know, not very long, maybe five or six days. He said, that's not much of a holiday. He said, I advise you to go back there for a month or so. That's what they their attitude was to the craze. Right? So, yeah. There was nothing I could do. I mean, what, what I, I was basically forced to sell it. They then didn't want it. And Terry Downs, the boxer, and his mate Sam Burns, the, the gambler, they made um, an offer to buy it. Um, at, by this point, I was sick of gangsters and, police and corrupt police and everything. So um, I had my lawyer who um, was up the next corner, around the corner from Chas McDevitt's place, which is freight train, you know, freight train, freight train goes so fast. And around the corner from there was my, my lawyer. And my girlfriend worked for him. And he said to me, um, you know, you'd never have to worry about, you know, costs or anything, because you know, Shirley does it all anyway. So now he's told me that Terry Downs I had an offer to sell it to a Greek for six grand, okay, which is like, this is 19, what was it, um, 1961. And, oh yes, incidentally, I'd already, and I'd opened an art gallery called the Mingus at the same time. So I had a jazz club, a coffee bar, and an art gallery. And the art gallery was in Marshall Street, two doors away from where Blake used to live. And Blake lived on the corner of Marshall Street and Broadbridge Street. So, um, that's another story as well. Uh, you know, the Mingus and how that started. But that, I mean, that, we could, you know, if we ever do this again, I could tell you about that because that's quite extraordinary as well. Um, so, so, and what happened was that Terry Downs made an offer of a thousand pounds, right? I already had this offer at the Greek one of six thousand. My lawyer is completely corrupt. I didn't realize how corrupt he was. So, he then said he was going to accept this offer from Terry Downs and for a thousand pounds. I said, why? I've got an offer of six thousand pounds. He said, well, you borrowed some money from me, which was like nothing, like a couple of hundred quid or something like that. He said, it's in, it's out of my mother's, um, you know, bank account, da, 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 like that. And he said, you signed a form to say if you didn't pay it back that I had 
control of your poverty. I, I think, you know, I, I don't know if that was true or not true. I don't know. But anyway, the, the truth was he sold it to Terry Downs. He, he took like, like £450 cost. He paid rates, da 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 da, da and he gave me a check for £74, right? This is my business, £74. Mm. So I started screaming and shouting in, in his business, you know, in a lawyer's place, you know, which has got the atmosphere, you know, of like a doctor's waiting room. What a bastard he was, da 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 you know, all the other solicitors are coming out trying to stop me. I go back to Sam Widges and I smashed every piece of furniture in the place, everywhere, the counter, the lock, everything. I smashed it all out. And they took another 50 quid off. So I actually got 25 quid. And I then realized that the basement was full of empty beer crates, beer bottles. And I actually got 60 quid from the Cray twins, what they left behind, empty beer bottles, etc. So with my other 65 and my 25, I ran down to Victoria Station, caught the train to Paris, no idea where I was going to go. And that's another long story. It ends up in Damascus and everything else like this. So then I came back and eventually um, yeah, I meet this lady, Melita, who was um, involved in an aspect of villain rights therapy. And, and she, I met her at a party by a man called David Cosby, who used to work in Better Books, which was down in Charing Cross Road. And um, David Cosby, when he was serving, was doing weird things with his neck like this. And I, and I said to him, David, do you mind me asking you, why are you doing this sort of thing? And he said, if you really want to know, wait till I shut the shop and I'll tell you. So I did wait behind and then he told me the story. He was only 24 and he started to die. And he was in Charing Cross Hospital dying. Nobody knew what was wrong. Nothing was functioning. He was really, you know, towards the end. And someone gave him the book called The Theory and Function of the, or of the Orgasm by Bill Reich. <laughs> and a section of it said that we had these defenses which were in like layers across the body. So it could be right around the neck, right around the head. They're in set different sections, right, right around the here, whatever. And what Reich realized was you could not directly, because he was the first therapist, you started touching patients. And he got thrown out of Germany, then he got thrown out of Holland, then he got thrown out of Belgium, then he got thrown out of England, then he got thrown, then he went back to America, and they actually basically sort of killed him. They actually arrested him, said that his um, organ machines were false and, full, and put him in prison, and he died in there. And they actually burnt his books in front of his son, who has written a wonderful book by Peter, um, but, but, you know, by Peter Wright, and about his father and about witnessing these, um, you know, FBI burning his dad's books. Right? Okay, so David Cosby in hospital read this book and came across this section about right. You, if you touch these areas of armoring, it's called armoring. You didn't get anywhere at all, right? Because it was so armored. But mm -hmm. if you moved an adjacent one, say by moving, whatever, this was David Cosby, this is what he did. So like, in order to take like, to, like, to free this area, he started like, doing lots of movements on this hospital bed with his stomach. And gradually, some feelings started to come into the adjacent armoring. 
right? So eventually he got well, well enough to work, well enough to do, and he was holding a party. So I went to the party because I, you know, I got to know. And at the party, I met Melita, who I later married, and we had our first child. And at that point, I was living with an artist community in Barons Court Road, and I, I can't go into the whole background of, of what that was. But we got each floor. I was on the ground floor. The man who bought it bought it for a guy called Christopher Sergius Leaf, who was a painter. And his patron was John Muirhead, who owned Osram lamps, but lamp bulbs, right? And John Muirhead said to Christopher, and Chris Sturgis leave, and said to him, what's the most important thing for you as a painter? And he said, having um, a place where you don't have to worry about the rent or being thrown out. And John Muirhead said, I'll tell you what, I'll buy you a house and I'll just charge you for the rent for the interest I would be getting in the bank for that, right? So I don't know much he paid for the house. It was 22 Barnes Court Road. Maybe in those days, maybe he paid 10,000 for it or something like that. So the interest worked out that I'd say 10 quid a week, five floors, each of us paid two quid a week. And, um, the weird thing was that Chris, who used to live in a sweatshop and paint all day, every day, and sell them down on the railings, you know, down in um, Hyde Park, etc. And that's he made a living. And he, you know, he wasn't so fancy. When he got the house and he was on the floor above me, he started, you know, getting very sort of poncy and wearing a black cloak with red lining and all this sort of stuff, you know. So I actually wrote a piece and stuck it on his door saying what the integrity of the artist really was to continuously explore space and you know and to actually you know you couldn't stop anywhere mm. and that drove him mad totally drove him mad so he pinned my notice up on the down inside the front door with a lot of other stuff as well and suddenly he came barging into my room and he's got a luger german gun and he goes if you're here tomorrow, I put it down to suicide. And he said, if you think this is a toy gun, listen, bang, and he shot to the you know the floor there. And and then Lita heard the bang and comes running in. And she's terrified. So, I mean, I know the guy. He, he he's an ex, and I mean he's so strong that the first time I met him was I was walking down Piccadilly. I don't know if you know where Cecil G's had their shop, and they had a big alcove in their shop, Cecil D's, and, you know, in Piccadilly. And this guy called Hillary was busking in there, and a couple of squaddies were going, knees up, Mother Brown, knees up, Mother Brown. And um, Christopher and Chris picked up these two squaddies, smashed their heads together, and kicked them out and said, you don't interfere with me when I'm listening to that, and they kind of nut music. Right? And another time I was walking with him down um, in Fulham Market and a barrel boy said, get your hair cut. And he just turned the, the, the barrel, old barrel on top of him like this. So he's a tough guy. And he was an ex-paratrooper. Um, and um, what's interesting is he dropped over um, Egypt at the time, you know, when we went into Egypt, the Suez thing, the Suez crisis. 
and he was coming down in a parachute, and there's it's you know this, this um all this um what they call it, you know, like um the, the bullets, you know, they lit up, you know, like that. And he's he said to me, so cut this for a game of soldiers, and he actually climbed up on top of the Great Pyramid and he buried his parachute and he actually absconded. He absolutely absconded. He didn't go back to England for a couple of years. He just left the army. He thought, no, that's not me, me at all. So yeah, so that so so because he now said to me, if you were here tomorrow, I put it down to suicide. I went down to Fulham Library and it was a, I was being guided. I pulled out a book on Yorkshire for some reason, and it was a picture of Howarth where the Brontes live. I go back and I say to Melita, I think we're going to go to Harris tomorrow. Well, she didn't have to go tomorrow. That's right. Okay. So she phoned up her dad down in the South End. He came up and we caught a train to Keithley, went to Harris, because we, that's right, because we found out there was a house for sale in the main street, number 30. And we bought it for 550 pounds. So that was 1965, and we were there to 1968. And in 1968, I was meditating in what's called a snicket. That's a, that's a very narrow path with dry stone walls either side. And I was meditating, and a voice inside me said, you have to find a center where people can give birth to their true self, a spiritual maternity hospital without dogma. What? Where did that come from? It was like loud freaker. It was inside me. Anyway, I went that and said that to Melita. So we left and we hitchhiked. We had no idea where we were going to go. And we ended up in Drum the Drocket. And then, then we met some people. And then from there, um, excuse me, you're not going to go now, are you? Yeah, I'm just going to sit. I'll be back in about an hour. Oh, really? Well, I, I've heard these stories before and they're fascinating. But... Yeah, but I'm finishing. No, you can't. I don't want you to go. But I'll come back. No, you'll just sit there. I'll finish in five minutes. No, no, no. I'll come so back. So Susie wants to go now. No. Oh, God, we've only got, yeah. up to, we've only got up to 1961. I was... Well, no, no, 1968. All right. I'll come back. Oh, all right. Promise me then you will. Promise. Okay, okay. So, so then... I, so I, I met some people in John the Drocket who told me about this um, empty house. And it was at the end of the Bunlight Road. And I went there and it was completely overgrown. It had been abandoned for seven years. And I squatted it with a hundred acres of land. And I'm still there. And that's where we're going to go be going up together. You know, and I've got a pottery there, um, which is run by you know, some people. And um, at some times there were 30 people there. There was a whole theatre troupe there at one point. And, um, yeah, so that was 1968. That was um, August 31st, 1968. Yes. I mean, is it um, just possible, just, you know, your gallery, the Mingus Gallery, is it, what, what period, you said it was like the early 60s, how long did that start and then finish, the, the Mingus Gallery? What was the story with that? Because hopefully it had a better end than the jazz club. What do you mean for me or do you mean for the whole movement? No, for you, you, you know, you had this gallery, the, the Mingus Gallery you mentioned. Oh, yeah, well, that, okay. When I, I went to Paris again, and I let the Mingus, there's this orator 
you may have heard of called Billy McGuinness. He was Irish orator and he used to speak um, at, Hyde, at Hyde Park Corner and Hescock Williams wrote about him. Now I knew him very well. And so when I went to Paris on this, on this occasion, I let him, you know, he could stay in my gallery. I, yeah, actually I got fed up with just running the gallery. I got fed up with sort of the paintings actually that I was getting. So, so Billy let in about another 29 of them and they all got arrested for vagrancy and taken to the magistrate's court. And in court, he said, excuse me, your honor, you're now in no position to judge me because I'm a king of the gypsies and only the queen of the gypsies can can um, you know, make a judgment on my behavior or of my friends. So the case was dismissed. But the police boarded up my place you know, with, with corrugated iron, etc. So when I came back from Paris um, on Christmas Eve, I, you know, I couldn't even get into my own place. It was like boarded up. Yes. And um, so that's what happened to the Mingus. I told you what happened to Sam Widges. I ended up you know, being like that. So, so then I told you about going to Harris. Then I told you the discovery of Goshen, this abandoned crop, and how I lived there. And I still, still got it there now. Yeah. So and for me, I'm still. I was never a hippie, but I was a flower power philosopher. That's what I was. I was very critical of the um, hippie movement. Um, John Michel used to call me the Puritan boy because I used to question people on acid what they were up to. Um, somebody else had made a badge for me called the Truth Peddler, a guy called Iron Will. He was a friend of Ken Campbell. Um, because I didn't care about being unpopular through questioning, because that's what I am. I'm a questioner and I question myself. And I question myself right now about why I'm doing this, you know, and am I just like showing off what, you know, I mean, it's like, I don't try to avoid that type of ethical issue. No. So for me, the 60s, as it were, was not the 60s. The 60s for me was a type of reincarnation of the Elizabethan love of beauty and poetry around the time of Shakespeare and even going earlier to Spencer and Andrew Marvel and all of that. So I think that golden age is a state of mind. Like I think India is a state of mind. It's not a place, it's a state of mind. And that state of mind got resurrected possibly through acid or something. It may or may not be, I don't know. But so that where, you could go anywhere in the world almost, and people would talk to you, you know? I mean, in that period, 65, 66, 67, 68. But then you see what happened was, is that the CIA and the FBI started actually um, selling bad acid and aspirin and also smack and cocaine and stuff like this. I mean, this is well known, it's documented now, that they actually did this. And um, so, when people say to me, and they do say to me, they say, well, you know, it all faded out. No, it didn't fade out. It was attacked. It was absolutely attacked. And what happened to the Elizabethan period? It was attacked as well. That was attacked. And so you had this really um, monolithic, cold poetry of the um, 18th century, 
you know, Alexander Pope and all these people, where there's no magic at all. It's commentary on behavior. And, and you know, it's not inventive. It's just like, it's dead. It's really dead. Then there's another type of resurrection of the romantics of Shelley and Keats and that. And, um, and they, yeah, they, they sort of, they killed that off in a different way. They killed it off by mimicking um, the quality in some way. I mean, um, I mean, that's one of the things about this world is that it's based on imitation and repetition. Our bodies depend on repetition. You know, my heart is beating, it's repeating. Everything is based on the cells. Everything is based on repetition. So the, one of the, this new novel that I've just writ, written called Recall questions this thing about, is there actually real freedom from repetition? Is there actual, right? Now, of course you can do it at the level of psychology. You can decide you're never going to gossip again. You can decide you're never going to make assessments of yourself or other people. You can do all of that. And you can actually clear, you can, you can clear your mind if you've got the good intention. But in terms of, well, I'll tell you what the key to this is. There's one essay written by Tolstoy, and I really recommend you read it. It's after he wrote War and Peace, and he wrote two essays, and this one particular one is on inevitability and consciousness. And what he says is this, that out of 100%, one person's life could be 98% inevitable and 2% consciousness. Somebody else, realizing that maybe, could actually be maybe 95% conscious and 5% inevitable. So inevitability, like he proposes that, the, you know, the, the great, you know, this big war with Napoleon and everything was all inevitable. It wasn't like down to Napoleon. Napoleon was just another bit in the chess game. He saw it as a wave of energy that went from the west to the, to west to the east, and then back from the east, back to the west again, like, like a pendulum. And that there is no one who is responsible. The generals think that, you say, what a wonderful, what an incredible thing. So in these two essays, in this other essay, talking about this, he says, in actual fact, like this very famous battle, that, which is, you know, on a river, and I can't remember, Belgrado, is it something like that? That... There was so much smoke and everything like that. The soldiers couldn't see each other and one thing and another. So in the newspaper the next day is an account of this battle. They both thought, the French and the Russians, thought they, they both thought they won. And it was complete disaster. And then what happens is a week later or two weeks later, an academic report is made by the generals about how they then brought up from the flank this and then they did this and they did that and did that. And then in about two weeks after that, the ordinary soldiers who knew fuck all of what was going on, they now, now believe these academic accounts of what that battle was like. It wasn't Bill Grouder, but it was something like that. Anyway, so it shows what the power is of how people will try to fit in with a consensus opinion. So in the inevitability and consciousness issue, which I think is absolutely spot on. 
everything that you do that is mechanical, like on automatic pilot, is your life is inevitable. If you don't do anything about it, if you don't develop any consciousness at all, then your whole life will be just inevitable. You know, you meet her, you have the children there, this will happen, that will happen, that, that, it's all inevitable. Or you can really work at it, like, you know, like some people do. And, um, you know, I've met a few of them. I mean, I, I had quite a lot of interaction with Krishnamurti. I, I, you know, I sort of got to know him in a bit. And um, so that is, for me, what the essence was of the flower power was about developing consciousness. And um, I was so quite, I wasn't that totally convinced by Tim Leary. Richard Alpert, yeah, maybe. Groff, Groff I think, is good. Um, but for me, I'm still within the ambit of that golden age. That's that's my yeah. That's why I'm. I'll show you this and um, this um, new book of my paintings that's coming out. Yeah, that's a proof copy of it. Can you see? Yes, blimey. That is amazing. That's the back of it. Nice. And actually, I'm chasing. That's a proof copy. So I only want one painting and per double page, not two, because it's a bit confusing. So these are these paintings are over a period of twenty years, right? And I can't see you, see what you're seeing. Yes, no, I can see them. No, they're yeah. fantastic. Yes. Yeah. So this book is called The Diamond Series. And um, so it's being worked on right now. So right. this is the fifth copy. And I've sent back what I want to have done. And there's an essay on the essence of abstract painting in it there. And um, yeah, so when it's done, I mean, it's going to be quite expensive to do. It's and it's, and it's going to it probably cost about fifty quid or something like that. Yeah. But I I was booked to have some exhibitions of my work, and each time I just felt no, actually, this person who owns this gallery is not in love with my paintings. I I mean, I don't need the money. I got I got money. So I, 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 I withdrew from it and then I, I was offered and every time I show my painting, they want to, everybody always wants to exhibit it right away. Okay. They say, wow. And, but until I meet somebody who's actually in love with them and actually love the paintings, they don't care whether they sell them or not, but just like wants to actually have them in their environment. That's how I, when I had a gallery, the Mingus, I, that's why I stopped doing it because I, the last person who you probably heard of him, Tony Shields. Okay. You heard of him? Yeah. Yeah. Tony Shields is the guy that made the mock Loch Ness monster, and um, and had it photographed, etc. Tony Shields, and he had an exhibition. He, like he, you know, like, but it was just like everybody else's Cornish paintings, you know. And I, I ended up saying to Tony. Look, I don't want to sit here telling the painting. You can, you know, I, I gave him the keys to the gallery. 
And that was the last exhibition. I said, you run it yourself. You know, it's your painting, you run it yourself. And I actually went to Florence. And that, yeah, because I thought, it's all very well, this, this sort of painting, throwing paint about and everything. I thought, I really want to see, you know, the background. I want to see what was people, people were doing in the 13th century and the 14th century. I want to take that. So I spent a lot of time in Florence, in the Uffizi Gallery, and also, you know, going up to Sisi and that sort of thing. And that was a real, that was such an important move to do, to actually do that. And, and so it's influenced me in my painting, which on one level you might say, well, what's that got to do with your painting? You know, I mean, what what has that got to do with, you know, it, that sort of painting? Well, it's got a lot because what I discovered was that if you look at one of these a very, very, um, just a very simple Madonna and child, and there's like no perspective or something, and people think it's naive. It's not naive. That's not what they're doing. It's not a visual although it is visual as it were, that's not the reason for it. It's not to admire the draftsmanship or anything like that at all. If you sit and just sit, and this is one of the things that is mm, being erased from this planet, is if you just sit there, you suddenly, something inside you wakes up your essence and you get this sense of reverence, not because of the subject matter, but because the, the sense of reverence is within you and in me, but there isn't anything to trigger it. And we're making a type of godless planet, or if you're a soulless planet, whatever you want to call it, where everything is personality and everything is competition. And um, so reverence is a very, 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 very important thing. So we imagine reverence comes because of the subject matter coming from the out into you. No, it's not. It's something that's within you, but nothing around calls it into play. Even say, maybe you've got a wonderful wife and you love her very much. It'd be unusual to have reverence, be unusual. Maybe, it, maybe it's possible, but unusual. So, what I saw was that when people reinterpret religious um, story, like say the Annunciation of Mary by an angel, or the, the three wise men, the Magi from Persia being led by a star. So they replace this with, oh, well, no, they were being led by a spaceship. The impregnation, and that was a, you know, somebody from another you know, dimension or from another part of the Milky Way or something like that. And she was impregnated by a ray that went into her womb, etc. When they do, when they retranslate everything in this way, in this sort of quasi-scientific sort of science fiction sort of way or something like that, the thing that's missing is reverence. Now, you know, I'm sure you read and um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle. Oh yes, yes. So, if you remember when he's teaching philosophy. Um, it is, and all the stuff are Aristotelians, right? So they're into, you know, Aristotle. What, what did Aristotle do? What did he give you? He put everything in categories, right? It was driving Persic mad. So he was trying to transmit what the problem was. When a student said, look, so you keep on talking about quality. what exactly is quality? And he started going through a complete spin, and he ended up in the hospital. 
And in the hospital, if you remember, Pedrus, another voice comes in and explains to him that you only know about quality by its absence. When it's no longer there, you know that what is missing is quality. Right? So you can't point to it whilst it's there, because that's like a type of quantitative assessment of quality, which is not quantitative. Right? Precisely, it's qualitative. So that insight that Persig had, which is so tragic in a way, you know, the opening line of Lady Chatley's lover is, this is essentially a tragic age, and therefore we refuse to treat it seriously. And it's still a tragic age now. We're living in a tragic age in which we do not, we're replacing quality with quantity and artificial intelligence. And, you know, there's these idiots who are putting millions and millions and millions. I heard one of them talking the other day. One of, one of these guys that calls himself a futurist, Raymond Kunz or something like that, he's called. He said that, you know, human bodies are old fashioned and they're made out of a substance that's, you know, prone to, you know, falling apart, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We're putting billions and trillions into making new bodies. And our plan is one, to project human consciousness into these new type of um, bodies made of, out of whatever they're going to make them out of, plastic, silicon, whatever. If that is not successful, then we'll go for the second option, which is the singularity, whereby everyone on the planet, consciousness will be like bees in a beehive. And you, you, you'd think, well, you'd be ashamed of doing that as a project, wouldn't you? I mean, you talk about the you know, total um, destruction of individuality, and you can see it happening already. I mean, you see, the thing is that now such an idea doesn't sound impossible, that they will do that, that, that where they're getting their inspiration from, I don't know. I mean, you can speculate, I don't know, but I don't know if you ever listened to Linda Moulton Howe at all in Earth Files. Do you know no. her? Hmm? No, I haven't. Okay. So if you look at Earth Files, Linda Moulton Howe, M O U L T O N, no hyphen, Howe, H O W E. This last week's broadcast, she broadcast on a Wednesday on YouTube. And it's very interesting. There's a guy there called Jerry Wills, and he talks about in Peru that there is a, a type of shape of a gate, like two meters high, but it's only about three or four inches deep. But he was taught by a shaman called Pedro how to sing three notes. I don't ever tell anyone what it was. And he said, it's very dangerous for you, but I'll just tell you about it. Anyway, he does do this, and he just passes through this sandstone, ancient Peruvian piece, like that, and he doesn't know where he is. Then it seems as if he's in the Milky Way. It doesn't seem like he's traveling through it. It's almost like it's traveling past him. And then he reaches some sort of ground, but it's not like earth ground. It's like, maybe it's like plastic or something. And there's a lot of light. I mean, it's like an enormous amount of light. And, and he shouts out, where am I? Does anyone, is there anyone here? 
where am I? And the voice comes back and says, who are you? And he says, you know, I'm Jerry Wills. And he said, what are you? He said, I'm a human being. He said, ah, well, you're in a different universe. He goes, what? He said, you're in a different universe. And he gets worried about, you know, because his wife is going to be waiting for him. Mm. So the voice says, turn right. Absolutely turn right and just keep walking into that light. And keep walking and keep walking and keep walking and keep walking. And he does and he does and he does and he does and suddenly he's back again. And if you listen to him talking, it's like, it's so convincing. It's so, it's, yeah, it is. Anyway, so anyway, Linda, um, who's probably the same age as me, she's probably about 80, something like that. She's a journalist. And so for the last 40 years, she started off getting very, she wrote a book about cattle mutilations. I don't know if you know about this, but they're all over the States, well, all over the world, but mostly in the States. Cattle were found dead with their internal organs taken out and you know and there, there was no blood there was no blood in the animal and there was no incision at all i mean they could see a mark but it's not nobody was capable of doing that no earth people were doing it and so she started reporting on this and she wrote a book about cattle mutilation about mutilations or animal mutilations and it got picked up and she became you know television programs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is 40 years ago. And then somebody phoned her up and um, I don't know where it was, Colorado or wherever, to go to this farm. And the, she met the farmer and the local sheriff. And um, the sheriff got the farmer to tell her the story, what happened to his prized bull, that he actually saw it going up in the air, going up in the air like a beam and disappearing into a cloud. And then, you know, then it, an hour later, it comes crashing down and the poor animal had, you know, had been drained of all its blood and its organs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And its last few minutes, it was digging its head into the ground. So, the connection now, she started off you know, the connection is now, of course, with what exactly is this UFOs, you know, I mean, this guy has seen his animal go up in the air and come down again. The sheriff actually, you know, had also, he hadn't witnessed it, but he saw the farmer the next day, right, and saw the cow, and the vets see the cow. Every time vets come to see it, they can't have no idea how this is done. Mm. So, on the grapevine, the story is that, um, you know, around about 1946, that the Americans um, actually had an interaction with alien intelligence over and did a deal with them that they were allowed, the aliens were allowed to take blood from animals because they were trying to make hybrids of, and also taking sperm and ovum from women, etc., and all that going on. So that, that's a whole nother story which she's been following as well. She's now moved to an area which is really very interesting, in which people that she's meeting um, who are actually working in the Pentagon and you know, secretly telling her that they now really seriously believe that this universe is a hologram 
projected from another universe. And why why they did this? What and that's probably what what Jerry Wills thinks that he was in a projected universe. So he said you're in another universe, and that this projected universe is an experiment for the one who's projecting it to get feedback on what happens if you do this, what happens if you do that. Like I had the I had a sort of insight, and I wasn't on acid or anything, but I had an insight 25 years ago, maybe 30 years ago, that from the galactic center, not beyond the galactic center, but the galactic center, now in the light of what Ninjas think, it might be beyond it, but I thought that throughout the galaxy, the concept of freedom was being like ripples from a pond. And I was with this, you know, with Dave Tomlin, and I talked to him about it, and he said, yeah, he said, but you do understand that, like, for one person, freedom is having lots of guns or lots of sex or lots of this, lots of that. There's, there's probably only a handful who think that freedom might be to live peacefully, like when Herman Hesse wrote Siddhartha about just sitting by the river. Um, right? So, and I think that isn't what's going on right now. Because the people involved in artificial intelligence, they actually believe that artificial intelligence is going to end wars, it's going to be, um, there's going to be equality. And what they're missing, you know, talking about Percy and quality, is that it's going to be soulless, absolutely soulless. You know, it, it's, so that's one of the things that I try to not make me unbalanced but to be really aware of that. And when I'm talking to people, I mean, this whole COVID-19 thing, I'm not saying there isn't a virus. I have been vaccinated twice. Susie just told me that Eric Clapton um, got vaccinated and has been very, 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 very ill. And she just watched him talking about it last night, apparently. Um, that... I'm not saying it's not a virus, but it's been used by all, I mean, I would call the Tory government a fascist government. And, you know, and so I mean, obviously the Chinese government is a fascist government and the Argentinian one. So that fascism um, is, you know, it's like, you know, it's singing in canon when one voice is dominant, one's coming in, one's going out. The dominant voice, and actually, what you know, when James Joyce wrote Finnegan's Wake, it's because he was inspired by Vico. He was a, uh, a philosopher in the 17th century in Naples who believed that everything went in the cycle of three. And it went from the gods who instructed everything, then the aristocracy, and then democracy, and then back to the gods, and then it goes round and round and round. So Finn, that's the end. Finn again, wait, is like, and then waking up and then starting order again. That's in the Finnegan's wake. And, that, and he, that's why he made it purposely inscrutable, impossible to read. On purpose, I mean, it's just, have you ever tried reading Finnegan's Way? No, no, I haven't. Well, even to read one page, even one page, it's almost impossible. I mean, it really is almost impossible. Right? I mean, it's just mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. And, you know, when people used to visit him, and, you know, his wife never used to let them go upstairs to see him because he up upstairs. But they'd often hear this terrible bang. And they'd go, what's that? And they said, it's him falling off his chair laughing. 
because it's a it's a book of book of jokes really in one level, and and but it's it's yeah it's it's quite extraordinary. So anyway, I don't know yeah you know, I don't know why he went into Finnegan's Wake. Yeah, that's right, Biko, and everything going round and round. That's right, that's right. So this thing that's dominating now, the the, the dominant voice is soulless fascism, you know, and I think that the Chinese Communist Party is the paradigm that they're all they're all moving into. That is that's what it seems to me to be. Nothing to do with communism at all. Nothing to do with communism. Nothing to do with Engels or Marx at all. It's got nothing to do with it. It's got something to do with and there's a BBC program which you should look at. It's called China's Magic weapon, and it's on iPlayer, and it shows you the background and what the agenda is that the Chinese Communist Party is propagating, and it's extraordinary and it's quite terrifying because I'm pretty intelligent and I can't see how it's not going to work. So yeah, it's there on iPlayer. It's called China's magic weapon. Yes. So just um, just going slightly back, could you mention talk a little bit about the production you did in the seventies or the late seventies, the Warp, and how that came about? Because obviously this is this put you in the Guinness Book of Records, didn't it? Oh, you're gone. The Warp. There you go. Oh, that's the stuff. Right there, you go. It's all beautiful. The Warp. Yes. Yeah, so, when did you start writing this, and when did that come into? And it was put on. It it started on my birthday, on the second of January, nineteen seventy-nine. Yes. And um, a lot of what I've been telling you is in the warp, and um, so I mean, only a handful of people really got it, you know. I mean, it's in, it was still going, 1979, it was still going in 2000 at the Drome, which is underneath London Bridge railway station. And the queues went all the way around, you know, like, that's why word of mouth, word of mouth. Because, you know, there aren't many things like the war. Right? So I wrote it with a lot of irony in it, which most people didn't get. And the irony was um, how someone who is refusing to compromise with the consensus mind, how, so his central character called Phil Masters, how he meets, you know, people who ostensibly are free, like Krishnamurti and Rajneesh and all these different people. And... Krishnamurti was, he was pretty real. He was pretty real. Rajneesh was really phony. Um, I also met Babaji and Eric and Baba. I've been in the Himalayas. I spent time with him. And um, so I spent time with a lot of these people, you know, masters and whatever. And um, so a lot of that is in the warp. And it's, you know, the, and so it's a story which includes, starts off if you if you look at the arena program, if you just like you know do arena mm-hmm. or arena Ken Campbell, you can get it. It's still there on. You can still get it. And um, 
it's interesting that I mean, do you still get it? And I, recently, there's a man called Dr. Richard Lever, who's a professor of communications at Cambridge University, who heard about the war, never saw it. I've got DVD copies of it. So he bought them for me. He got really so excited by it. Then he wrote to me and said, have you got the original VHS, you know, tapes that was made in 1979? You know, when a, a video camera was huge, mm. you're trading all these um, wires behind with people stand on it, it's all white noise and everything. He said, I can clean all that up for you. I can do the whole thing. You can have the actual original 1979 production at the OCA all cleaned up. So when I go up to Scotland, you know, in the beginning of October, I'm just going to, I'm getting them, the original tapes, I'm going to give them to him. And um, let, then it, get it all cleaned up and then turn that into DVDs. And that would be quite something, you know, for history, really, to have it as it was. Because the DVDs that I've got, I had to edit it. And so it, instead of being 24 hours, it's only... It's only 16 hours. You had to get a lot, you see. Mm. Yeah. Um, anyway, 16 hours is still quite pretty good. And um, and, and, and so after the, after the walk, 16 hours, then you get interviews with me and Ken and, and, the, and a lot of the actors and whatsoever. And I you, you probably, I don't know if you know or not, Michael Coveney, who um, wrote for the Financial Times, a whole page of the Financial Times with huge letters at the top says, the world may soon divide between those who have gone through the war and those who haven't. And so that really was what an accolade that was. And that was picked up by a man called, oh God, and his son is Rubenstein, I mean, Hilary Rubenstein, who was there head of the AP Watt, who was the oldest literary agent, agents for Beckett and Yates and all those people. He phoned me up, asked me to come to his office in Bloomsbury. And he said, listen, I've not seen your play, but my son goes every night. And he just says, it's fantastic. Could you, could you novelize it? He said, if you could, I'd probably get you a contract in a day. So I said, yeah, I could probably novelize it. He said, but before we start, he said, I feel a big burden because I've helped quite a few writers become famous and quite a lot of them are dead, either from car crashes or drinking or whatever like that. And I don't want the same thing to happen to you. I don't want, I mean, he said, could you handle being suddenly extremely rich? I said, sure I could. He said, what would you do? I said, I've got 100 acres of land up in Inverness, overlooking Loch Ness. There's a lot of stuff I could do with, um, you know, with, with a lot of money. So he got me a contract the very next day with Sierra Books. Colin Murray, who was the editor, um, didn't know anything about me, anything about the walk, nothing whatsoever. He said to me, listen, if I give you um, a couple of sheets of foolscap paper, can you just like write something? And so and so I can see what you can do. This is in Sphere Book, in Grey's Inn Road. What's it called? Um, Grey's Inn Road, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Grey's Inn. 
Yeah, Fear Books. They were also a backers, you know, that, that's all that, that company. And um, so I just wrote some, you know, wrote some stuff. And he said, oh, that's amazing. It's like that Jack Kerouac. I'll give you a contract. And so he gave me his contract. It was next to nothing. It was 3,600, 1,200 feet. I said, I'll do it in three volumes. And then you can still get them. If you look, go on to Amazon, you can still get them. Sometimes they're very expensive, like 80 quid a time. Yeah. Sometimes two quid, you know. Um, so I did it. But, um, I mean, God, sorry. I mean, what they did was they um, they got taken over, or so it seemed, they got taken over by this Americans, these Americans, who didn't want the book put out. And so they pretended they burnt it, that, it, that there'd been a fire in the warehouse. And so on the day of publication, I had gone into Sphere with the third volume, Right, so I contracted that I would deliver one every six months. Right? So I was delivering number three, and the next day number one was supposed to be coming out because they were contracted to put it within a, a, within a year of receiving it for me to mm. publish. So when I bumped into Colin Mary delivering number three, he said, "What are you doing here?" I said, "Here you are, Colin. There's the manuscript for number three. Oh." Thanks. Now, before this, he was incredibly keen. Right? Now he seemed to be completely indifferent. So I said, it's publication today of volume one. Tomorrow. All right. I said, well, what sort of publicity is he going to get? Oh, he doesn't need publicity, he said. Everybody knows about the warp. I said, no, wait a minute, Colin. I mean, there's people who went to the theatre, the ICA. There's people who went to the roundhouse. That doesn't mean to say they know the book is coming out. He said, he said it automatically we're going to Smith's bookshop. Don't worry, it doesn't need any publicity. All right. So the next day, I'm living in Caledonian Road. Do you know Caledonian Road? No. No, okay. So it's a road that goes up from King's Cross Station. Goes up to it towards Islington, up mm -hmm. towards Holloway Road. And I'm looking out of the front uh, of the window. And I've been phoning up different bookshops. They never heard of it. Smiths don't have it. They don't have it on their computer. So I'm getting anxious, all right? And then the buses, double-decker buses are coming up. And across the double-decker bus, it says, Time Warp by John Gribben, published by Sphere. Bus after bus after bus after bus. Time War by John Gibbon, published by Sphere. Right? So, what's going on? So I phoned up Sphere. And I phoned up, I don't know, the editor's department. And they said, no, you need to talk to the publicity department. I talked to the publicity department and they, put, they said, no, you need to talk to the sales department. So I talked to the sales department. And I said, I'm Neil Oram. And... Um, Today is publication day of my book, but no one seems to hear about it. And wait, excuse me, sir, just wait for a minute. Mr. Ron, yes, your book has been burnt. I said, what? Said, your book has been burnt. There was a fire at the warehouse. I can't believe it. Said, yeah, well, that's it. Sorry, Mr. Ron, put the phone down. So I got this friend called John Sharkey. 
who published Celtic Mysteries for Thames and Hudson. And we drive down to the warehouse, Sphere Warehouse, which is in Blackheath, I think, mm-hmm. that's where it was. And um, I'd been down there before to get a different book, which was called Alternative Three, but that's another story. So I knew where it was. And but the warehouse is below, so you drive in, you stop your car there, and the warehouse is down there. And there's two guys standing here, and I assumed that they were detectives or something, because sure enough, the warehouse is a breeze block building with um, um, with corrugated, um, what's the stuff that's really poisonous? You know, uh, asbestos. Asbestos. Oh, asbestos. And sure enough, right at the end on the left-hand side, there's there's marks of smoke, etc. But there's business as usual. Forklift trucks are going in and out. There's piles of books, etc., etc. I walk down. I see the foreman. I've seen before. And I said, "Oh, I said, I've just come. Do you have any copies of the Warp Volume One?" And as I say that to him, one of the two guys back there shouts to me, "Hey, you, you, you!" I turn around and say, yeah, yeah, come here. I think that I think they're the law, you see. So I say, excuse me to the to the warehouse manager. I go back up to them and they say, what are you doing? I said, I'm ordering some books. He said, you can't just walk in the warehouse and order books. I said, I've done it before. I got books from Sphere before. They say, this is not Sphere. I said, what do you mean it's not Sphere? He said, can't you hear? I said, yeah, if there's not sphere. I said, what is it then? And they say, um, they, they, they say the, another name altogether, because I can't come around. I don't want to waste some time trying to, trying to think what it is. But anyway, whatever it is, it's an American publisher. Not publisher, they're more magazine ones, whatever. So I say, they say, if you want those books, you'd have to go there. I said, where's that? So they t- I said, could you tell me where it is? They said, we could. And I said, well, would you please? And so they told me where it is and we drove there. And we drove there, it was nearly one o'clock. And we stopped the car and it was like, oh, glass, but Thompson's, Thompson's publication, right? They said, we're Thompson, Thompson's publication. So we went inside and, you know, I said to the lady that, you know, we come to get these books volume one of the walk. And she said, well, you have to come back after lunch when um, the sales department will you know, deal with you. And after it's been passed by Sphere. And I said, well, I've just been told this has nothing to do with Sphere. And she said, but I don't know what you've been told. I know where I work. But they've got Thompson's on the top of you know, the building, glass building. So, so John and I went and... Um, had some lunch in a pub nearby. I phoned up a guy I knew who's got his own bookshop, which was the bookshop was a quote from Coleridge's poem about dark they were and golden eyed or something like that. Mm-hmm. In the bookshop, I phoned him up and said, "Do you want some of these you know, my books?" He said, "Yeah, I'd like to have twenty or something like that." You see, I said, "Could you phone them?" and you know, make an order and because I'm going to go in there. And he said, sure. And then as we, John and I were going back, I said, oh, fuck, I should have actually told him not to mention 
that I, because I knew that they wouldn't want the author coming down there, right? I mean, already I know there's something dodgy going on. I don't know what it is, but I know there's something dodgy going on. So we go back in, and instead of the lady you saw before, there's another, there's a much older lady knitting. And um, I say, oh, I said, we've just come to um, get some books, um, you know, published by Sphere. And she goes, funny things going on around here, dear. She whispers it, funny things going on around here, dear. I said, really? Yes, she said, suspected arson. I said, oh. He said, selected books. I said, oh. He said, very, very strange. I, I see. He said, you go and sit over there and um, I'll phone up, you know, and say that you're here, okay? And as I, we both sit down, the two guys come through, ones we've seen before, right? And they walk right past us, give, a, give us a cursory look, and the, there's a spiral staircase, everything's glass, and it includes the stairs. And they go running up the stairs. And then a the guy comes running down. My name's Brian, and I understand you want some books. Is that right? I said, Yeah, that's right. He's how many do you want? I say five dozen. He's how many is that? I said, What the fuck? Is it? Where, what planet am I on? I said, Well, it used to be 60. He said, No trouble. Just wait. And so he goes through another door, and within two minutes he comes back with a big plastic thing with 50 books in and 10 loose. Okay. Here's your 60 books. Because he, he asked me before, he said, have you got money to pay for them? I said, sure. Right. He comes back, puts them down on the table, and I say, where did you get those books from? He said, what do you mean? I said, where did you get them from? You just went next door and you came back in here with these books. Where did you get them from? He said, I got them off a customer's pallet. I said, well, that's really strange. I said, because I looked at, you know, your place and, you know, your, and I talked to people, you know, with your computers and everything, and they, there's no mention of the book at all. And yet you've got a customer who got it off there. He said, you seem to be really, really involved in this. I said, well, I am. And he said, so what's this book about? I said, it's about how publishers get authors to write things and then not actually put it out. And he said, oh. Um, but anyway, you owe me whatever it was, right? 45 quid or something like that, you know, it, 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 like, I, I don't know what they were sending him from, like what, £2.75 or something, mm. I got them at 75p each or something like that. And so then, right, so now we've got these books. So then Hilary Rubenstein, this, you know, the agent of AP Watt, phones me up next day and asks me to go into the office. I go in there. Now he's the guy that told me that how, you know, I have recourses of becoming very rich, etc. Right. So now he, the story is totally changed. He says, "Oh, he said Colin Murray is not very pleased with you." I said, "Why is that?" He said, "Because he told you he is a blatant lie. He told you when you saw him two days ago in Sphere that your book had been burnt." I said, "He never told me any such thing." I said, I couldn't imagine it. No such thing at all. 
And I said, it's not burnt. He said, well, they didn't like the idea of you going down to the warehouse. I said, I bet they didn't. And I said, you know, and they didn't like you going down to Thompson's place. I said, I bet they didn't like know that at all. So they wouldn't put it out, okay? But we had a contract to put the warp on at the Everyman in Liverpool. And I forced the Liverpool Everyman to order Sphere, the, the warp volume one, to be sold in the entrance of the theatre and actually set up a cubicle for selling the books. And that led to the biggest bookshops in Liverpool. One bookshop put like a hundred books. Their whole window was these books of the warp volume one. So I forced them to sell them basically and they sold 18,000, something like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, the print one was supposed to be 25,000 for the first one. And they sold 18,000. In the second volume, they obviously didn't want to sell it. And they sold maybe 7,000. And the third one, 4,000, something like that. Since then, I met somebody who was working as a salesman for Sphere. And I found out the secret. Oh, good. Right, the secret is this. Every month they make 10 books. Only one book do they put money in to advertise it. They cost that one book, the cost of the whole 10 books, they use as a cost for that one book. So the other nine books are but she. And if by chance one of them takes off, they make a lot of money, right? Because they, so that John Gibbon book, Time Walk by John Gibbon, they put 350,000 pounds into it, advertising it. Hmm? Right. And they made a lot of money as well. My book, nothing, absolutely nothing, right? And so when that third book gets actually published and I get the proofs, at the back of it, I thought I'd fuck him up. I wrote the story of what they'd done. I thought they won't read it that closely, right? But they did, and they took it out. Because otherwise, that would really be funny if I really managed to get Sphere to publish a book about what Sphere had done with this book. But I failed to do that. Yes. So does that mean you have any ownership or of, of your own work that you could one day publish it just the three volumes yourself you know self yeah, I own it now, yeah it's gone out of publication i own it now yeah it always i always owned it yeah yes yeah. i mean is it the case because you've done quite you've done a lot of work are you wanting to make sure your work is archived and is going to be accessible from now on i do want that to be accessible yeah i think there's some important things in them yes I just wondered if that was a project that you're doing at the moment, just to make sure that it doesn't all get lost in those sort of, you know, moments of well, life. We're going to be doing, doing right now, um, Recall, which is quite a longer one. I mean, there's another novel I did by the same people. Can you read that all right? Yes, Inside Out. Yeah. And it's by Barncock Press. Okay, the Bronco Press is run by 
Chris Sanders, who used to be the editor of IT. Mm -hmm. And he loves my work. So he's now doing this new book I'm doing, Recall, which is a bit bigger than that one. It's going to be about 450 pages. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it's very wide ranging. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, this guy's this guy, um, Dr. Richard Cleaver in Cambridge, I sent him, um, you know, it's in nine parts, you know, on Word. So I sent him these nine parts. And he's the only person who actually sat, not bothered to sit and just read them right, right through. So I mean, within three days, he's writing to me and he's so excited by it, by it, it's a thing. So I say to him, because I don't have any hard copy of it at all, you know, paper mm -hmm. copy of it. And um, I wrote it by hand. I write, I write by hand. I don't write on a computer. And then I, then I, you know, and then I type it out after I've written by hand. So he's actually, Taking the trouble to um, make a terrific um, copies of it for, for me, that it's all so I, I can now do proofreading, you know, on paper, and it just makes a hell of a lot of difference. Yes, quite. Um, so look, just just going back to your place at Drumla Drocket, you yeah. you've had it, you've had it for decades, and you obviously will still have it. Um, what? Why? I mean, you're obviously not living there at the moment. Is that a place that you stay sometimes? Well, I'm in a studio. I'm in a studio a few miles from Land's End, and the plan was to spend six months down here in the winter, and six months, in the, you know, go back in May for six months and come back. You know, that's mm. the idea. But COVID happened, so I couldn't get up there that following year until August, and I came back on the fifth of November. And this year, because I'm going to go up with Susie, who's doing Airbnb, her last people at the end of September, so we can't go into October. But, and so we're only going to really going to go for a holiday, basically. Yes. And um, this studio is lovely. I mean, it's um, it's wooden. It's what the Americans call clapboard, mm -hmm. and um, so it's got you know quite a big. It's got a big room, and it's got a bedroom at the end, and it's got a toilet in between, and um, really good windows. Yeah, nice. Yeah, and um, and it's a, a it's a um, organic farm, and there's about six different buildings like this with different people living in them. Right. One of them is quite a high-profile person, Paldon Jenkins. He was the nephew of Roy Jenkins. Nice. And Paldon is a um, humanitarian, does a lot, of, a lot of work for Palestine children and um, <clears throat> excuse me, and people like that. And also people in the you know in Africa. And that's his world, yeah. But he's just he's just trying to get a book published called The Shining Land on the Stone Circles at this in, so we're at the really end of Cornwall, obviously. So this peninsula part of Cornwall has got mammoth amount of stone circles and ancient, you know, caves and everything like that. So he's, he's, he's just finished a book, but he's got it well written. But all the publishers, because we're an American publisher, and that was hopeless, then the other publishers around, I said, well, aren't there any publishers in Cornwall? He said, yeah, but they want to they change the text and turn it into a tourist guide. 
So I said to him, well, I said two things. I think I said, my friend Chris might be able to help you, the you know, same one, Chris from Bangkok. But I said, why don't you just send it to Ed Tenzin Hudson? You know, I said, you know, the trouble is that people imagine that Faber and Faber and Tenzin Hudson and these people are getting sort of brilliant manuscripts every day. I said, it's not true. I said, yours is completely original. You should just send it to them. And anyway, I talked to Chris about it. We both looked on the internet of Feldon Jenkins at what he's got there. Mm -hmm. Chris said, if you do the layout, I'll do a book for you. So, because um, he's pretty depressed. He doesn't have any money and he's, he's got, He's got lots of problems in it, anyway, so I so it might cheer him up. But he hasn't contacted Chris yet, so we'll see. No. So what are you planning to do with your place at Drumler Trocket? Because that was obviously a place where theatre companies came and people stayed, and it was quite a community. And obviously things change. What's what's your plan for the the place for the future? That's a good question. Because I don't have just one. I have. I've got quite a lot of flipping about going from this to this to this. As it is at the moment, I'm just going to leave it to my three daughters. Because the truth is, and that's what we're talking about quality, is that that magical way of living. Because when you see, when I lived there, I grew everything. I mean, literally everything, including wheat and oats and, and having cows and having, you know, and, and weaving and making carpets. I mean, I, I'm talking about real full on doing the whole thing, you know, really crafting and living off it, not going to the shops. I never went to a shop in two years, three years, maybe. I mean, the, the women had a VW van. I never had anything. And um, so they would go in getting things that, you know, I wouldn't be bothered with at all, like, like ever. And um, like I was, because of the circumstances, I was vegetarian, not because I was, but because I wasn't killing any animals. Mm. I wasn't killing my chickens. I wasn't killing, yeah, my cows or whatever. You know what I mean? I wasn't doing that. So I was living off the land, but, and, um, yeah, oh, obviously we had eggs, you know, lots of eggs, and we had ducks as well. And we, yeah, so yeah, I did, I did all of that. So what's happening to it now is that um, the pottery is run by Rebecca and Joss, Joss Wynne Evans. Joss Wynne Evans is a, or he was, and um, Rebecca, and um, when he, I first met him, he said, I'm going to make you a rich man. I said, I don't want to be a rich man, Josh. And um, he had been a millionaire, lost it, been a millionaire, invested, lost it. You know, he's been a millionaire quite a few times. And um, he's probably getting close to being one again. He's the, um, he works for a company, and the CEO used to work for him. He had a company called Magenta. And this guy called Patrick worked for Joss. But then what happened is that BT double-crossed them on a contract of millions. So they had to go into a thing in America, which is called something like Category 11 or something. It's like, yeah, it's like a sort of bankruptcy, but it isn't quite like bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. 
So at that point, Patrick joined another company, which is, I think it's called something like Global Network. Mm -hmm. they, they, they make computers the size of this building, right? And then, and they're up in Alaska, whatever, the, you know, the, the computers, because they need to be cooled all the time. Mm -hmm. So Josh does all the contracts, all the, he's got, a, he's got a degree from Cambridge in, in law. So he does all the contracts, and the contracts are, well, I mean, they're in millions, they're in millions, you know, like a contract might be 18 million or something like that, you know, that sort of thing. So that's the sort of money he's into. I think his wages are something like 4,000 a month mm -hmm. or 5,000 a month, something like that. And so why I'm down here is that three years ago, I got sick and tired of hearing Joss talking to his mates in Los Angeles or Chicago. They got offices all over the States now, right? San Diego, everywhere. And he talks very loud on the phone. And I thought, what have I done? I've created this place as a hermitage away from this madness of the world. And I got it right here in my face. Money, 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 money. Right? So I phoned up Paldon and said, listen, do you know somewhere I can go? Because I, Paldon had stayed with me when he was finishing one of his books. Mm -hmm. And he said, as a matter of fact, you struck lucky. There's a studio going. It's, it's still being done up, but it'll be ready to be moved into in a week or so. Phone up the farmer and I did, he liked me, what I was saying. Because I, because I can, he has, doesn't have to worry about rent because he, you know, he just had my bank account, I got a standing order, and that's no problem. Mm -hmm. So, so that's why I'm here. And as far as Gosham is concerned, now the pottery used to be run by Jenny, and Jenny was extremely um, energetic, and she suddenly got MS. Her brother is a year older, just died of MS, you know, at the age of 53 or something. Mm -hmm. And and so Jenny, you know, she's like that, yeah. So Rebecca, who was Jenny's assistant, took over, paid Jenny, you know, for the, you know, some money for it and, you know, for the for all the pottery that was in there. So it's now run by Rebecca and Joss. Jenny is still there. And she's very lucky. She's got a guy called um, Mark who looks after her. And um, and and the, Mark is, so is Janet, very into nature. So they have squirrels visiting them and actually bringing their babies and show to them. And, and their whole place is, you know, surrounded by birds and squirrels and stuff like that. So they live, they live there. So there's four of them there. Jenny and Mark, Rebecca and Joss. And um, yeah, so it's not what it was. And I don't think it ever could be again. Mm. Yeah. So as it stands in my will, I've left it to the kids. Yeah. They can do it. They can just do it. But you've got your archive there, obviously. And just briefly then, just on that production you did in Edinburgh in 1990 was that the, the first and only time you did a um a sort of no it wasn't the first time right 
I, I, I did the I did the Edinburgh Festival, either poetry with Roger McGuff, um, Adrian Mitchell, people like that. Um, I did probably five or six years, maybe even more, of Edinburgh Festival. Sometimes at the Travers, other different places. Um, yeah. Did you know the Travers Theatre? No, I, I mean, it was a long time ago when I went, so all I can so, remember. So the Travers Theatre is quite famous place, a bit like the Edinburgh Man in Liverpool. And um, yeah, so yeah, so I was, at one point, I was spending a lot of time in Edinburgh because I got my eldest daughter, Celeste, into the Rudolf Steiner School in Edinburgh. And um, I don't want to talk about that, you know. Anyway, anyway so yeah, I got to there. So that meant that um, this person, Pete Carr, from Carr's Biscuits, Pete Freen, you know, whatever, blah, 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 blah. He was at my place and he bought a flat for us because it wasn't just Celeste, it was Sabina's boy, same age as Celeste. So I got, we got um, Sabina's boy and Celeste both into the Rita Steiner School. So we, so one parent needed to be there, you know, so we swapped over. All right. Yeah. So we bought this flat. Mm. And what I didn't know, Celeste didn't tell me until 20 years later, that here was I thinking how great it was that she's going to Steiner School, etc. you know, like Annie, Annie Leonard went to the same school from Eurythmics. Yeah. And, um, what was happening was that because of, you know, after the holiday, you know, we would, you know, scrub them, et cetera, et cetera, but they still, their clothes still had, you know, an, a fragrance of, of wood smoke because everything, you know, we, we lived on, you know, open fires and wood and everything. Mm. So she was called Smelly Sally by the kids. And I would turn up in an old London taxi. And what I didn't know was that, they were being put down all the time because all the other kids were from rich parents. And on one occasion, her class was walking to some swimming baths. They didn't have swimming baths in the school. And she, in her innocence, pointed to the flat, which was in a, what you, in the old days we called a cold, cold water flat, you know, an Edinburgh you know, stone thing. And she said, oh, I live up there. Well, what's wrong living in a flat? That everyone, all the other kids went, what? You live in a flat in Dundee Terrace? Wow, the Dundee Terrace wasn't a bad thing. So she put down even for that. So she only told me this, you know, 15, 20 years later. <coughs> I said, why didn't you tell me at the time? She said, I know what you went through because I, I got in for nothing. Um, no fees. Yeah. And um, she said, I know what you went through to get us there. And I didn't want to disappoint you. So that's what happened. Mm, that's why it's difficult, isn't it? I'll tell you what, David, I'm getting tired. Yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. Yes, I know this is going to be quite quick, wasn't it? But yeah, look, this is great. Look, I think I've got quite a lot there, Neil, actually. So so that's brilliant. And yeah, we are both, it's probably flagging a bit. You know, just briefly, when I came to visit you in 87, you I think you were with somebody. Was that with Susie then? No. 
Right. And it's usually the Penzance lady, as with Gemma. Right. No, I wasn't. Wait a minute, let's just think. 87. Wait a minute. Gemma was born in 1966. 76. 86. Yeah, it was with Gemma. Gemma. Yeah. Right. I... Yeah. You know, she's become a complete bitch to Ruby, terrible. And, um, she was so bad. I, I got a brilliant flat for Ruby. And then she's saying that you won't be able to operate in a flat or anything. This is when Ruby was, I don't know, 18, 19 or something. And I ended up six years ago saying, that's enough, Gemma. You know, I'm not saying we haven't going to have some fun or whatever. But don't ever contact me again. Don't tell me, don't anything, email me, nothing. Finish. And she stood out in the road and I shouted out, you raped me for 25 years, you bastard, which is the exact opposite of her mad sexuality, which borders on S&M madness, and, which I wouldn't engage in. It's that opposite, right? I raped her. And then she said, you should have done this 10 years ago when I had pulling power. I said, Gemma, you pull somebody in a week. I know you. Okay. In four days, she had met Patrick Sinclair, whose brother is in the House of Lords. The Sinclair family, one of the richest families in Europe, they own the castle where the Queen Mother used to stay. And his mother's Countess, well, she's died now, the Countess of Sutherland. She was living in Thurzo Castle in four days of saying, I don't have pulling power now. And she was like the star in this aristocratic world of this lady from um, Rumford, who is um, fantastically sexy and everything, yeah? And so Patrick thought, well, I mean, he just met the woman, the only one that could possibly of and um, you know replaced Caroline, his wife, and all that. So they were, and I thought because she was switch, and she would switch in such a way that you may have read it in books, unless you've experienced it yourself, you would never, ever, ever imagine how someone could switch in one second from being a sensibly warm and loving, etc being a complete total mad tyrant bitch within a split second so the last time i took acid with her which is probably six and a half years ago no maybe not quite yeah it's just six yeah six and a half yeah something like that and she just went the whole time going in and out of the house in and out of the house in and out of the house in and, out of the house, in and, out of the house, and i'm lying on the bed and she's going in and out of the house I say, Gemma, yeah. I said, I'm here, I think. She goes, Neil, what's the matter with me? I've got no conscience, no conscience at all. She said, My mother taught me to be hard. My fucking mother taught me to be hard, and I've got no conscience. She said, Can you ever get your conscience back if you lost it or killed it or whatever? I said, I think you probably could get your conscience back if you remember what you feel now about not having it. 
He doesn't remember tomorrow mm. and the next day and the next day. He said, listen, if you see me going to this bits trip, you just say, Gemma, remember what you understood? Yeah, okay. Next day, tomorrow in the afternoon, because we went to sleep very late, he starts exactly the same. So I say, Gemma, remember what you understood about conscience? You love that sort of thing, Neil, don't you? Confession. She said, I did it for you, for your entertainment. She said, you, how you so love me, being on bended knee to you. Like that. That's what she said. Like the same thing. Like, like evil, you know, awful. So Patrick, I thought, well, when Patrick going to see through this? Of course he did. And um, he told Ruby, my daughter, that she's the worst woman on this planet. You don't want anything to do with him at all. So she moved back to her mother. She's living with her mother in Romford. And the irony is that my daughter, Ruby, to get away from her in Scotland, is living in Chelmsford, which is just 10 miles away. And so lucky for Ruby, she has got a carer who actually cares, who has tried to talk to, to Gemma and say, you've got to stop. Is attacking your daughter, and she just says "fuck off." And so, um, Hannah's made it so she can't get hold of Ruby, and she's had the court order on her and all that sort of thing, you know, like that, and telephone, and she can't phone it, whatever. He's still very fucking clever because Ruby loves Gemma's mum, her her grandma, her nanny, her nan. So, not very long ago, maybe four weeks ago, she phones up Nan. Nan's asking her why she doesn't phone her mum. And she tells her about how Gemma tells her that she, you know, is a sick, you know, and she tells her terrible stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's actually, it wasn't Nan, it was Gemma who said, I've got you now, I hear what you're saying about me. She actually was using her mum's telephone and to answer the phone and Ruby thought she was talking to her Nan, she was actually talking to, to Gemma. Yeah, yeah, that's not good, is it really? Sick. It's horrible. It's not yeah. good. But look, Neil, I'll let, I'll let, let's, um, well, look, thank you ever so much for this. Um, I'll keep in touch and I can send you the link to this so you can have it as your, an archive. Thank you. Um, and then you can have the whole thing. But God, you're, you. yes, thank you ever so much. Okay, Bye. I'll let you go Bye. and let's go and have a cup of tea or whatever. Yes. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye. Bye bye. And that was me in conversation with Neil Oram. And if you got this far, well done. You deserve a house point. Anyway, look, this has been David East or The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86 Show. Also, these have all been archived, so you can find those on Spotify, um, Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. There you go. Have a great week. Stay safe.